Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that's organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Mark Gergen, CEO at Poseida Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Hey, Rahul. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So, Mark, to set the stage, we'd love if you could provide us the arc of your career, where you've been and how you got to where you are today. Well, very good. I uh, I started out my career actually as a lawyer, which was a good place to start. And uh, that was many, many years ago outside of biotech, but moved into corporate America very quickly, became involved in the business side of things initially in the medical device world, worked for a big company called Medtronic from pacemakers and whatnot. And that was really where my transition happened to move away from law and into corporate development, eventually strategy. It was that job that actually brought me to San Diego and really kind of launched me into the biotech world after Medtronic did a major acquisition and decided to move out of San Diego. So now I've been in San Diego about 25 years, been involved in quite a number of life sciences and biotech companies. Up until quite recently, my roles were what I would call the number two guy. So I've been COO, CFO at four different public companies. This CEO role at Poseidon is the first time that I've taken on the CEO mantle, and we can talk about that. It was a bit of a natural transition for me. But you know, my role and my efforts have always been very strategically focused, obviously very transactional focused, which tends to happen in biotech. You know, really excited by the science. I would say that I started out in big companies, but I love small emerging companies, fast-growing companies. To me, that's the most exciting environment to be in. And so that's kind of what's brought us to today. And Mark, I'm curious. Being that you're now in the CEO seat, and for perhaps some of our aspiring CEOs that are listening, what's one thing that surprised you about making that transition and accelerated learning perhaps that you needed to undertake? Like I mentioned, I've been on executive committees of, I think, a number of biotech companies and and other companies over time. So I'm not sure it would be a surprise, but really it's the focus that's required on things that are more strategic, high level, often externally facing, especially in a publicly traded company, and the amount of time that that takes, obviously, as a part of your overall day. Prior to that, a lot of focus on you know getting things done, day-to-day operational activities, especially in the roles I've had. So you know when you rise to the CEO level, your focus shifts, you're managing the board, you're managing investors, you're being you know the spokesperson for the company and engaging and, and you know empowering and getting the employees excited. So that really is a shift, especially for people like me who have a long history of being doers (laughs) to, you know, being really more in that sort of strategic leadership and visible role is just, it's not a problem. It just requires you to shift your thinking and how you're allocating your time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. That certainly resonated with me as well when I when I made the transition and haven't really thought about it in quite a bit. So thanks for the reminder <laughs> to get out of the weeds and, and continue to focus on the strategy. And so, Mark, before we jump into the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Poseida, would love for you to provide us an overview as you see it on the cell and gene therapy space, perhaps allergenic CAR-Ts, what you think is required to have a single treatment cure, and then would love to obviously then talk about Poseida. 
Well, I mean, I think the cell and gene therapy space is incredibly exciting, obviously. And I don't say that just because we're operating in it. I just think that if you look, you know, let's say look back the last 10 years, right, where really cell and gene therapies have started to emerge and come into their own. The results that we're seeing in some of those therapies are just extraordinary. So the benefits for patients who largely went untreated by small molecules and antibodies are just astounding. I mean, you're seeing deep, deep responses, in some cases, cures of patients where before, you know, the diagnosis was a death sentence. And I think both in cell therapy and in gene therapy, we're seeing that. So, so it's incredibly exciting. Yet having said that, you know, it's still early and there's still lots and lots of challenges. I mean, in the gene therapy space, for example, you know, I think there have been 20 clinical holds in gene therapy in the last 24 months. And so, you know, that has obviously, once again, set the industry back a little bit in terms of retrenching and thinking about it. You know, most of those, I would say, were driven by older AAV, adeno-associated virus technology. And so I think there's some learnings there. But, but the potential of the space is extraordinary. I think in cell therapy, which we operate in, you know, we're moving to off-the-shelf, what I would call allogeneic adoptive cell therapies, whether that's CAR-T or NK cells or what have you which I think is super important for patients because we need to have broader access for patients and you know, ultimately for commercialization purposes. I think we need to move to an off-the-shelf therapy as opposed to an autologous personalized therapy. I mean, those are just, they work, but they're expensive. And I think they're just going to have limitations on commercial reach. So you know, I think the industry is just poised. The, the results, the early results are exciting. I think the tools which is an important component, are improving to make these therapies. But obviously, there's more innovation needed. We need to keep developing the right tools and move to really tools that are probably developed to fit for purpose of what we're trying to do, not just try to redeploy tools that we've had in our toolbox for a long time, which I think is part of the challenge the space has seen in the last five or seven years. So, you know, we think we're excited to be leading the way there. We can talk about that in a bit. But I just think it's an exciting time for drug developers, for patients, right, for companies, for investors, you know, but kind of going back to the earlier where we started this conversation, you know, the biotech space is, is not without risk. And so you need to have that appetite for adventure and change and excitement to operate in this space because it can be very volatile. And so it, it's not for the faint of heart, I would say. Yeah, two follow-up questions there that come to mind. Given that drug development is an extremely risky business and it's part of what we sign up for, from a culture perspective, as you've now managed teams of varying sizes, interested to hear if there's any lessons learned or tips of advice that you could provide folks in terms of how do you continue to keep the team motivated through all the ups and downs of drug development? And I've certainly seen a lot of volatility in terms of emotions for some of the folks that are new to biotech as well. And curious to hear your insights on the matter. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that largely it's about communication, right? I mean, it's about painting the vision. You know, a lot of our employees in Poseidon's case in particular, they come here because they're attracted by the science and the differentiation of the tool. So, you know, we get them because of that. But, you know, it's the old analogy of, but these are new tools. It's never been done before. So that comes with even more implied volatility, right? So it really becomes about communication. And I think painting 
you know, at least for my seat, painting the longer term picture of where we are ultimately headed, right? I mean, I keep telling one of my common phrases is, look, don't look at the stock price. Don't look at the changes in the market. You know, if we are successful in, you know, creating allogeneic cell therapies, if we're successful in having single treatment cures for gene therapy, the stock will take care of itself. And, you know, you really just need to stay focused on the patients and what we're doing. And of course, the science is moving very, very quickly. So, you know, we've all had ups and downs in this space, but I think you just need to try to over communicate. And you also need to be thoughtful about the type of employees you're hiring. You've got to hire people that have that risk tolerance that understand, you know, what research is. (laughs) If we knew all the answers, it wouldn't be research, right? So, you know, I mean, it's really important to focus on the folks you're hiring. I mean, interestingly, in the cell and gene therapy space, there's a war for talent because there aren't that many people with real experience. So you also have to be dedicated to, you know, finding the employees and then really kind of teaching and developing people on the job because there just isn't enough talent to go around for all the companies that are trying to operate in this space. So you know, at the end of the day, it becomes about communication, about engagement, finding ways to keep people excited about what you're doing, you know, and hopefully help them realize that, you know, if you have a trial failure, you have some challenge, you know, you just need to pivot and use it for learning and focus on what you can, because we have to keep innovating in this space, you know, to really take advantage of the potential that we have. And so, Mark, you brought up stock price, and we've all been observing quite a bit of volatility in the public markets. I'm curious what you make of that volatility, given the inherent risk in what we do, and what perhaps you're looking forward to in terms of the public markets. Yeah, great question. I mean, I, if I could predict the public markets, from well, I would. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think biotech in particular has always been very, very cyclical, right? And it's cyclical based on macroeconomic factors. It's cyclical based on data. It's cyclical based on M and A. You know, and so I think to a certain degree, we're in a point of normal correction. I mean, it's been a while since we've had a correction. There's been a ton of fundraising, a ton of activity in the space. So to a certain degree, I see it as a normal point of correction. Now, in cell and gene therapy, I think you probably have to look at those independently. In gene therapy, as I mentioned, you know, with all the clinical holds and all of the safety issues in the last 24 months, all of the generalist investors have been scared out of the market for now, right, for now. And I think investors are just struggling. There's so many companies. How do they pick the winners? How do they place the bets that they think are, you know, are going to be the winners? And, you know, I think for that, we're going to need some data. We're going to need some deals. We're going to need some things to turn the tide and bring people's attention back to focus. I mean, I think one of the challenges is in the last four or five years, there was so much money available. Too many Me Too companies got created that really didn't have points of differentiation, right? And so, you know, investors are just like, well, where do I place my bets? There's too many. I'm just, you know, they give up because they can't possibly do the work to do full diligence on 80 companies, right? Totally they agree. To find the one. And so, you know, I think for us, at least, I, I take comfort in that. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen some examples lately where people have done deals or had data and they're actually getting a disproportionate response because in the market that is suppressed, you're getting a bright light shined on the points of light. And I think, you know, that can come from data. It can come from validating deals. And I think it does present an opportunity. I mean, nobody likes it when the stock market is ugly, right? But I think it is an opportunity and it will turn. There is so much money out there sitting in the hands of healthcare investors that they have to ultimately put to work. 
So the question is, and, and my hope is always after a correction, do they be a lot more thoughtful and intelligent about where they're putting the money to work and put more money to work behind the bets that they have higher confidence in and not just spread the you know peanut butter around so that they're trying to play the whole field. So you know, it'll turn. I mean, obviously, the the disruption in Europe and in Ukraine is not helpful in the macro sense, but you know, I, that too will resolve itself at some point, one way or the other. So, you know, I think we'll come out of this. If when you've been around a while, you've you've seen your share of ups and downs, and uh, you know, we're just happened to be at a low point that's slightly more complicated by a pandemic and some you know political turmoil. So. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that perspective, Mark, and that wonderful primer. So let's talk about Poseida and you know, talk about the science there, what you all are building and, and where you are from a R&D perspective. Sure. So what actually brought me here, which is maybe a place to start, is Poseida, I think, is one of the unique companies. We think of ourselves as a genetic engineering platform tools company. We don't really think of ourselves as CAR-T or gene therapy. So, you know, our founder, Eric Ostertag, actually was the first ever graduate from the gene therapy program at the University of Pennsylvania. While he was still there 20 odd years ago, he started a company, which is actually our predecessor company, to start developing these tools to do better, cleaner gene editing. And so that's really the foundation, even though Poseidon was only formed in 2015, it really dates back 20 plus years to when Eric was in grad school and really got passionate about trying to find better tools to do genetic editing. And so, you know, you fast forward with Eric to 2014, CAR-T was heating up, gene therapy was starting to come back to life after some early setbacks. And he decided to spin all of the technology into what is today Poseida for doing human therapeutics, right? So these technologies are not brand new. They've been in development a long time. They're very mature, but our technologies are very differentiated. And, you know, we don't have time to go into it all today, but let me touch on a couple of aspects of that. So when we think about, you know, genetic engineering, we think about it in three buckets. One is gene insertion. So whether you're doing ex vivo, like CAR-T type work, or whether you're doing in vivo gene therapy, you have a need to insert a segment of DNA into the broader DNA of the patient. So that's gene insertion. How do you get the gene in? Second bucket is gene editing. So you might want to go in and cut out a defective gene, right? So you think of CRISPR, we have a proprietary technology to do gene editing. And then third is, depending on your application, you need to deliver those tools, right, into the cells or into the body in a way that works. And so we have nanoparticle technology, we have virus-based technology that we're trying to move away from, but that's been the history. So in gene insertion, we have a technology we call super piggyback DNA modification. So most people in the cell therapy space use viral-based technologies, lentivirus, gamma retrovirus, or or whatnot, or adeno-associated virus in gene therapy. We're completely non-viral in gene insertion, and it has other benefits. It's got large cargo capacity. It's uniquely well-suited for modifying T-cells, which turns out to be our lead program. And so it's a very different technology, much cheaper than virus, doesn't have some of the history, right, of terms of uh, safety issues and whatnot. In gene editing, our system, we believe, is the cleanest gene editing system. It's very novel. I mean, you guys probably know CRISPR. There's fights over IP and everything else. We're outside of that. We have a, a unique proprietary system to do gene editing. And then we have delivery technologies. If you're modifying cells ex vivo, you can just use electroporation. Pretty straightforward. Everybody does it. In vivo, our goal is to move to nanoparticle non-viral delivery, right? And so we have a nanoparticle platform to deliver these technologies. 
So you can mix and match those technologies in a number of ways. But when I first came here, I was excited by the breadth because if I look at other companies, very few have all of those technologies under one roof, right? They're either licensing things in or accessing technologies for elsewhere. So that gives us a lot of flexibility to mix and match those technologies to do pretty much anything in cell and gene therapy. Now that comes with the strategic challenge of focus, <laughs> right? Because when you can do everything, you need to focus because you can't afford to do everything. And so, you know, people often say, why don't you just do one thing? And I'm like, well, we don't want to just do one thing because the technology I think is too interesting, but it is actually relatively narrow. I mean, we're really focused on allogeneic CAR-T for oncology, right? So that would be pillar one. We're focused on in vivo gene therapy, mostly liver-directed at the moment. That's two. And we do have a focus on what we call continued platform development. So that comes back to the comment I made, which is if we think to the future and if we think of really taking advantage of the potential in cell and gene therapy, we need to keep innovating. We need better tools to make sure we have that happen. Long answer, you know, there's a couple of programs within that we could talk about that we're really excited about, but, but really it comes down to we're a genetic engineering platform company with some very novel technology, you know, that we think is a step ahead of some of the older technologies and, you know, have a number of programs moving in the clinic that I think are going to prove that out shortly. Great. And Mark, given all the potential of cell and gene therapy, and to your point about focus, particularly given your background from a business perspective as well, how do you go about creating an indication selection framework when it's easy to try to boil the ocean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. <laughs> great question. So, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at targets, looking at, you know, different choices for indications and whatnot. I mean, early on, just to be candid, you know, we chose targets that were validated because we didn't want to take technology risk and target risk, right? So in, in the CAR-T space in oncology, we started out with, you know, BCMA for multiple myeloma because it's a known good target, even for antibodies and bites, let alone cell therapy. You know, and I think that was a good choice because it allowed us to see efficacy right away and to learn a ton in the first couple of years. Our second target on that front was for PSMA for prostate cancer. Again, I think a good target, well known. Beyond that, we now have started to say, okay, well, we've de-risked a little bit the platform with some validated targets. Now we're moving to some more novel targets. So our first allogeneic solid tumor target is a target called MUC1C, which is very interesting. It is expressed on every endothelial derived tumor, which is a long list. You can think about, you know, lung, breast, ovarian, pancreatic, GI. I mean, it's, it's a long, long list. And so you know, that's a super interesting program, but it's a more novel target. In gene therapy, you know, I would say it partially depends on the gene that you're trying to correct and where that resides in the body, right? So most of the gene therapies today that have been successful, you know, are aimed at non-dividing tissue. We decided to focus on the liver because there's quite a number of diseases you can address by modifying hepatocytes. And then it comes down to, well, how big is the gene and what are you trying to show, right? So we've got a couple of programs that are each designed to show something different as we think about target selection. In one case, it is, well, let's take a gene that is so big that nobody else with old technology can deliver it. So that's factor eight for hemophilia A as an example, because piggyback has this broad cargo capacity, that's a competitive advantage. So if we can deliver a big, big gene into the liver, that's a huge win. 
Next one was, we really want to focus in gene therapy on diseases where other people can't go. So if you think about monogenetic diseases, many, many, many of them, they manifest from birth, right? And older technologies like AAB will not really ever be able to treat infants and newborns, but that really is an area where we want to focus. And we can do that because our technology actually permanently corrects the DNA. So if you know gene therapy, AAV technology is transient, right? It, you get episomal expression of your gene, but it doesn't actually integrate it into the DNA. And so for a young infant who is growing rapidly and their liver is growing and dividing, you have to integrate if you want to have a clinical benefit because otherwise your effect gets diluted out. So, you know, target selection, you know, it is a problem to try to focus, but we are also focused in these niches on we want to get to clinical proof of concept of the approach. And then the platform is actually very efficient and would allow us to build and ramp the platform or the pipeline very quickly once we have that initial proof of concept. So in CAR-T, we focused on multiple myeloma for aloe, multiple myeloma for a hematologic malignancy, MUC1C for solid tumor, and then the two liver-directed gene therapy indications. But once, if those work, then it just opens up the productivity of the platform very quickly. Great. And Mark, on the topic of productivity, we all obviously have had to adapt quite a bit over the last two years amidst the pandemic. From a cultural perspective, would love to hear if there are any learnings about this new way of working, particularly for biotech leaders, given that, you know, we have to go into the office when you have labs, et cetera. You know, I think the order of the day is flexibility, right? And and that's really where you need to be focused. So even lab people, I'm like, you know, come in, do your experiments. And if you want to go write it up at home, go home, right? So we need to be flexible. I mean, I think it is going to be important as long as the pandemic rules allow to periodically get people together. I mean, I don't think a We've all been there, right? I don't think a 50-person Zoom meeting can really result in the kind of collaboration and productivity and thoughtful thinking that having everybody in a room together can do. So I think there needs to be a balance. I mean, I think for us in certain jobs, it has certainly opened up the ability to recruit people from other geographic locations and whatnot that's been very helpful. On the lab-based stuff, I mean, you still need to get people together. Now, you also need to recognize when an individual can work well remotely and when they can't because some people are awesome at it and some people aren't so there's a whole management mindset of that needs to now be a part of your thought process as you're assessing your employees and saying if somebody you're hiring or a current employee can this person actually be effective and productive working remotely or not you know i mean none of us know what's going to happen longer term i mean we, we're going to have to watch it and see you know there's going to become questions of well, if somebody that comes into the office gets promoted, is it because they were in the office? And, you know, a lot of those interesting employment-related dynamics are yet to emerge, but we'll have to navigate those together. But, you know, I think we've done it fairly seamlessly, but I think flexibility, absolute flexibility is the key to allow people to come and go. And for those that need the interpersonal interaction, you got to figure out a way to feed that to keep them really engaged in what they're doing. And Mark, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the next several decades of biotech. And perhaps one area where we can start is what are both opportunities and challenges that you're seeing in the cell and gene therapy space? And, and what's getting you really excited over the next three to four decades about what's ahead? And then also, you know, if there's any additional thoughts around the regulatory landscape that you'd like to see evolve. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, as I look out 20 years, I will probably be retired, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it's exciting. I mean, it's really what caused me to step into Poseidon. It's what caused me to step into the CEO job, because I actually believe that, you know, 20 years from now, cell and gene therapy is going to be mainstream. I mean, I think it is going to make up probably a bulk of what's going on in drug development. I mean, if you think back 25 years ago when antibodies were just emerging, now they're everywhere and you've got bispecifics and tri-specifics. And so antibody technology has blossomed and exploded, even though early on people said it'll never you know, be a legitimate technology because it's too complicated. So 20 years out, I think cell and gene therapy is going to be the predominant mode of modifying disease, frankly. And I think we're seeing the early signs of that. So, you know, what's needed is we need to make sure that we are continuing to develop the science and develop the tools that can actually take advantage of that. I mean, I referenced that earlier. I don't think, you know, 20, 30-year-old viral technology is going to be able to take us to the future. I think we need to move beyond that. I think we need more precise tools. I mean, we're excited about, you know, non-viral gene insertion. We're excited about our very, very highly specific gene editing. Uh, we just announced at R&D Day that we're working on a site-specific version of our piggyback technology so that we could pick the exact spot in the genome and be super precise about where we're inserting genes, which I think will become important, you know, as in vivo gene therapy gets bigger and bigger. So we need to keep focused on developing the technology. And, you know, we also need to keep in mind that we are in the early innings here and we're going to have some stumbles as we talked at the outset, right? We need to keep our eye on the long-term prize that it's going to be worth it and that we're going to have to put up with some speed bumps and some technology challenges along the way. But the potential is there. I mean, I think the challenge, as you referenced, the regulatory challenge is real. I mean, regulatory frameworks, both here and abroad, are slow to evolve. It takes a lot of time because of the political process and the nature of it. And right now, today, I would say they're making some progress, but most of the regulatory requirements don't really cater to the uniqueness of a living cell-based product or a gene editing product. And you know, maybe one great example of that is in cell therapy, particularly autologous cell therapy, you know, you are using the patient's own cells, but if you're thinking about a cancer patient who's been 15, you know, lines of therapy before they got to you, the regulatory requirement that you start with sort of the last salvage patients, you're basically predetermining an outcome because you're waiting until those cells and that disease is so progressed that you're not starting with optimal material. So ideally, a cell therapy should be used frontline, right? And we're seeing some progress there with some of the autologous companies. I think Gilead Kites made some great progress in moving earlier in the lines of therapy. So I, I think regulatory needs to evolve. I think it will, but I think it's going to take an industry effort, honestly, to continue to push and try to move that ball forward. But, you know, I think ultimately the efficacy that we're seeing will pull that forward. So I think we need to keep focused on innovation. When I talked about us at the outset, I said, you know, we have AlloCAR-T, we got gene therapy, but we're highly focused on continued technology and platform development. And, and I think that's critically important. We need better tools to unlock all this potential that cell and gene therapy have for patients. Mark, thanks for sharing your perspective about what's ahead in our sector. To wrap up, given all that you've seen and experienced across biotech, I would love for you to perhaps reflect and talk about one thing that you wish your younger self knew. Yeah, well, I would say there's a couple. You know, I would say the first one is 
kind of touches on what we already had talked about. Keep that longer term strategic perspective. What are we trying to accomplish, right? We're trying to literally cure disease or address life-threatening diseases for patients of all kinds. I mean, in our case, oncology or genetic diseases, you know, I mean, that is incredibly important and you need to keep an eye on that to get you through the speed bumps and the roller coaster that happens in between. You know, I think the biggest thing I would say is take risk right, for somebody that's coming up in their career. And when I say that, I mean business risk, science risk, career risk. Some of my best steps forward are when I actually took a step back, right, went from an executive vice president job to a VP or even a senior director job because I saw the opportunity that would be in front of me. Don't be afraid to take those risks, you know. And thirdly, I would say is, you know, really need to get more people, especially in this space, thinking unconventionally. You know, thinking outside the box is sort of maybe an easy way to say that. But I mean, really, it should be what box, right? I mean, it, we need people that are focused on not settling for conventional approaches. I mean, not saying, well, everybody does it this way or, you know, things of that nature. So, I mean, those are the things that, you know, they're maybe easy to say, but I think you do need to get into that mindset because it's too easy for people young in their career to just sort of fall into, well, I'm just going to do what's expected and not not take those risks because I'm worried. But you know, I think those are the things that I would go back and tell myself that maybe I could have avoided some of the uh, speed bumps along the way. Yeah. Well, Mark, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you for sharing what I think is probably a, a very small tidbit of all the insights that you have given your career. Wishing you and your colleagues at Poseida continued success. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, it was great to be on and appreciate talking. And hopefully we can uh, chat again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.